Welcome back, everyone, to Uncommentary. I'm your host, Marty Duran, and this is going to be a different kind of an episode. I don't have a guest today, so this is just going to be me uh, doing a stream of consciousness for a while, not unlike the five things episode I did about a year or so ago, or it seems like it's been a year or so ago. Uh, so thanks for listening, and I hope that this will be somewhat of an encouragement, maybe even some instruction, if that's where you are on the continuum right now. But first of all, I want to stop and thank uh, everyone who has supported this podcast financially, um, whether you're a Patreon and you're contributing every month, or whether you have used PayPal and contributed once or periodically, or even if you have sent me a check or handed me cash, then um, that has been really, really helpful and such a great encouragement along the way. And uh, I want to encourage you to do that if you have not yet. So if, um, if you've been listening to Uncommentary, even semi-regularly, uh, I would really appreciate some uh, financial support as it helps to pay my scheduler and uh, also the guy, James, who does my audio engineering which is not being done on this episode because I'm recording this and then uploading it directly. Uh, but James does a great job, and I should be able to pay more, and I'd love to be able to pay more. So if you could head over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash uncommentary, then um, there's options there for like 2 bucks a month, 3 bucks a month, 5 bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, and 20 bucks a month, I think is what the levels are. Uh, and there's some swag involved, so if you could do that, then you'll get swag, and uh, you get a great coffee mug and a sticker. Hopefully, T-shirts before the end of this year is up, and uh, we'll just see how that rocks and rolls before we uh, before we can uh, promise that those will be made available. But if you could support us, that'd be awesome. Uh, I don't pay the car payment or the house note or anything like that, but it does help uh, pay those guys and um, alleviate some of the... Uh, the ticky tack stuff off of me uh not to be confused with tiktok uh or you can for one time you can go to paypal paypal.me slash uncommentary pod and uh, make a one-time gift there and after listening to this if you'll make a one-time gift of 25 bucks i'll go ahead and send you the mug and uh, you can be one of the select few that has the uncommentary mug uh, and I'd love to get rid of the ones that I have um, by people subscribing um, through pay- Patreon or a one-time thing of 25 bucks through PayPal, and that'd be awesome. And then if you have an opportunity, don't forget to rate and recommend in your favorite podcatcher. Uh, I'm getting close to 100 in Apple, and I'd love to see that number uh First over 100 after this episode. So I want to start off by saying something that really shouldn't be controversial, but oftentimes it is, and that is simply that black lives matter. Um, I don't even know why people bristle at that, but apparently they do. Um, you can say black lives matter. You can hashtag black lives matter, and you don't have to support the organization that formed out of the movement, capital B, capital L, capital M, black lives matter. Um, I don't, I've never sent him any money. I couldn't tell you who runs it. I couldn't even tell you really what they stand for other than I went to their website once, looked at their philosophy. I wasn't down with all of it, and that was the end of that. But that doesn't mean that black lives don't matter because they do. Uh, So we're in a time right now where that's in the news again, and uh, I just want to affirm uh, to all my black friends or uh, folks that may stop by and hear this particular episode that uh, I'm one person that thinks your life matters. So I love you and Jesus loves you. And uh, I hope that um, that things are going well for you. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of 
how I came to the journey to love justice because it's not one that um, that really you would have expected. So I'm from the South. Um, I'm a white dude in my mid-50s, uh, raised in a uh, very conservative Southern Baptist church, uh, grew up in a, a conservative Republican voting family, uh, this despite the fact that my dad was union, at least from the Reagan years. Uh, my family voted uh, Republican. I, I voted Republican. Um, I was a, a dependable GOP voter. <clears throat> Wouldn't have considered anything else, much less Democrats. Uh, no third parties, no independent candidates. Um, we were solidly in the conservative voting camp. And I can tell you that uh, I started going to church when I was about three years old. My mother uh, came Came, became a Christian when I was about three years old, and we started going to church at that point, and we went to everything. So Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night visitation, Tuesday morning visitation, uh, revival meetings, special meetings, work days, uh, trips, camps, um, VBS. There, there's nothing that had to do with church and church life and church ministry that we were not involved in. And um, and in some ways that continues until this day. Uh, I've, from the time that I became a believer at, at 18 years old, um, I've been committed to one local church or another uh, with my family or, or now at uh, empty nester time. Uh, none of that has changed. I love, the local, I love the local church. I love God's people. And I love being uh, involved in some way, shape, or form. Uh, so I went into the ministry in 1989, I believe it was, uh, as a pastor for the first time. And I can honestly tell you uh, that to my memory, I do not think I heard a sermon on justice in the sense of uh, justice that is temporal, that has to do with people's day-to-day lives, uh, with the equity of uh, systems or local justice, systems of justice, Um until I preached one, and I was probably in my 30s when that happened. So all of my growing up years, I don't remember uh, hearing sermons that had to do with uh, how the justice system uh, should work in the sense of relationship to God's righteousness or how God's uh, ideal of justice would play out in everyday life. I know you're getting some pops on the peas and uh, – James is not here to take those out, so sorry you're going to hear some of that this time. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, most of the preaching had to do with uh, if if justice was a thing at all, it was the justice, uh, God's wrath being satisfied at the cross, or uh, people being cast into hell eternally uh, because they didn't accept Christ, and uh, God's justice was exercised on them. And so uh, I do believe in eternal punishment. I do believe that God's uh, wrath was satisfied at the cross. Uh, I do believe that, that justice was carried out uh, on my behalf and through faith in Christ that I'm forgiven. So I, I hold those uh, pretty common tenets of the gospel. But as I, uh, as I got older and I began to uh, study more and I began to hear people's stories, uh, their experiences of life, and read outside of the tribe in which I grew up, uh, I began to find out that there were reasons to pay attention to the justice system. Uh, there were reasons to think that justice was more than just uh, cosmic or eternal, that there, was, uh, that there is a temporal aspect 
to loving justice. And so as I studied through the Old Testament, especially, uh, and got a, a great perspective on what God thinks about justice, he's God who loves justice, he's God who hates injustice, and all of these uh, ideals that God talks about and that God claims for himself are things that happen in day-to-day life. So God talks about the widows and how they're treated uh, in the court system. God talks about the orphans and whether or not they're being ministered to. God talks about the poor and whether or not they're getting a fair shake. God talks about the rich and whether or not they're using their money to bribe their way out of uh, a justice situation or bribe their way out of a fine or something like that or to buy their way into power. And so um, I I don't really know what the tipping point was for me, whether it was finding out about International Justice Mission or whether it was reading a book like Ordinary Injustice by uh, Amy Bach or whether it was hearing testimonies of people who had been saved from uh, human trafficking or whether it was reading about uh, people on death row who had been framed uh, or who were there because of sloppy prosecution or ineffective counsel. And so I began to to think about how all of these things fit into a notion of uh, justice and injustice as I was reading it in the scriptures. And so um, I began to, to write about it uh, on a blog that I still have that nobody reads um, and to think of and have conversations about what these things mean. And I did come to the conclusion, ultimately, from reading Scripture uh, and studying um, commentaries about what was going on in the Old Testament, especially in regards to justice, that God does care about what happens in the courts of any country. God does care what happens, uh, that, that those things are fair and that those things are equitable and that there isn't favoritism shown and there isn't exploitation involved and there isn't framing Uh, that is done and that people do get a fair shake and that one group isn't oppressed by the system while another group benefits from it and um and and all these things can be true and right and believed without believing that you have to institute the old testament as law i'm not i'm I'm, i don't believe in that we're supposed to have a theocracy uh I, i don't believe that we're necessarily supposed to be trying to institute the mosaic law uh, into American, you know, codified into American into the American system. Uh, what I do believe is that that laws should, in some way, reflect uh, what God desires for a society. So, having a law that says "you shall not murder" is reflective of God's will in a society. Having a law that says "you should not rob" or "you should not rape" uh, or "you should not uh, exploit," uh, "you should not take advantage of," "you should not bribe," uh, that those things are illegal or should be illegal, is reflective of what we see from God in the Scriptures. And so I begin to think through, um, what does that mean? How do we how do we affect that? And so um, I'm as far from knowing, at that point, this has been now years ago, I mean, and to, and to say, as some have said, uh, that this is cultural Marxism or that this is, Uh, critical race theory or that this is critical theory or intersectionality or other phrases that I still wouldn't claim to know what all of them mean. Uh, And I also don't believe that a lot of people using them know what they mean, especially in the evangelical world. Uh, But the idea that people can't 
see justice and injustice as important to the heart of God by reading the Bible is is way out there. And so um, when you read the Old Testament prophets, you read the minor prophets, um, God repeatedly threatens to judge his own people because they have allowed injustice to supplant justice. And again, we're not talking about forgiveness of sins and righting cosmic wrongs and people being restored to faith in Christ uh, by making sure that everybody gets a fair shake when they go to the butcher. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about everybody should get a fair shake when they go to the butcher because God wants people treated well and God wants wants the dignity of every human being to be uh, recognized. And so when that does not happen, um, God is not happy about it. And the Bible is clearly obvious about God's desire for justice to take place. So um, as I begin to meet and talk with uh, black friends, for instance, um, guys that I had begun meeting along the way from church or wherever, or from work maybe, uh, and I began to, to go to lunch with them and sit down with them and ask them to tell me their story. Tell me, you know, what's different about the way I grew up and the way that you grew up. And there was a stark difference, especially as it came to interactions with law enforcement. Um, I could say, stop me if you've heard this one before, but I'm going to keep going. Uh, because I've talked about this uh, different places and different times, and so uh, I don't think I've I don't think I've ever distilled it down into a single uh, a single talk. So, uh, give you a couple of examples from my own life. When I was um, much younger, and I was working, uh, we we still lived in Georgia, and I was working in Atlanta at a company that delivered freight. And uh, we would pick it up in the mornings near the airport, which was on the south side of Atlanta, driving to town. And um, then we would uh, deliver it and then go back. I worked to split shift, so I would head back before lunch and then come back in the afternoon. And so there was this uh, particular stretch of road coming out of Atlanta toward the interstate. I think it was Central Avenue. It might have been Piedmont. I really can't remember now. Uh, but anyway, that road started in in downtown or upper downtown and came down all the way like by the Capitol and some other government buildings and then became the ramp that went onto the interstate. Well, the speed limit there was about 35 miles an hour. Well, I do remember that I was uh, on my way to some kind of an appointment, dentist, maybe doctor, something like that. And so I was kind of in a hurry. And so the road was really clear. I do remember that. And traffic was flowing on the interstate. So I was going to hit I-75 South coming out of Atlanta, go back to the terminal, get my car and go to this appointment. And so I was booking it down there and I was running 70 in a 35. And as soon as I was getting ready to merge on the interstate, I see uh, the lights from a motorcycle cop in my mirror. Uh, I pull over on the side of the road. He walks up and begins the normal thing, license and insurance. And so I do that, and uh, he says, you know, you're going 70 and a 35, and I'm going to have to give you a ticket. And so he starts to write out the ticket, and I say, or I said to him, I don't guess there's a way you'd consider just turning this into a warning, is there? And he, he said, no, but you know what, I'll, I'll make it a 55 and a 35. And so I didn't say anything out loud, but inside I'm saying, like, well, great, dude, I'm still going to have to pay a fine. That was the whole point of me asking you to turn it into a warning. But I didn't say anything because I didn't want to make the situation worse. So he, uh, in those days, they took your license and stapled it to the original. I don't know if they do that anymore or not. But uh, so he took my license, stapled it to the original ticket, handed me the copy, and told me I could, you know, mail in the payment or 
take it to the courthouse or whatever. So when it came time to pay, I realized that he'd actually done me a huge favor uh, because at the time, I don't know what the law is now, but at the time, if you were a certain amount over the speed limit, it was a one fine. But if you were greater than that amount over the speed limit, it was a substantially greater amount, maybe like a hundred bucks. And that number apparently was 20 miles an hour. And so what he had done by reducing it to 55, what he had done by lying on my behalf uh, was reduce my fine by about a hundred bucks. Not long after that, and I know it wasn't long after that because I still had the same license. Not long after that, I got pulled over uh, on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night going home from church on my motorcycle. And uh, the officer, this is uh, in Jonesboro, Georgia. The officer says, uh, you know, do you know why I pulled you over? And I could honestly say that I didn't because I really didn't know. And he said, um, well, you ran a stop sign back there. And, you know, I, I didn't know for sure is very possible and uh he said so i need your license and insurance so i handed him a license and insurance and um he walked you know he walked his car and did the thing and then he came back and he said um so i noticed that you've got staple holes in your license here uh so that means you've had a ticket recently right and i said yes sir and um and he kind of he kind of you know picked at the the edge of the license a little bit and he said well I don't want to mess up your insurance by giving you another ticket on your record. So uh, just, you know, don't run stop signs and here's your license. Have a good night. And that was it. And so I didn't even get a ticket. Uh, Fast forward a number of years. I hadn't been pulled over at this point for, man, I don't know, 20 years probably. And I had bought a uh, a Honda S2000. It was a 2003 sweet, sweet car. kind of wanted a sports car my whole life and waited till the kids were gone that whole you know grown up and grown out everybody thinks you're losing your mind but it's a cool car had it for about a year and so i was going to church one morning top was down it was a spring day man it was nice and uh on my way to church big five lane road right through mount juliet tennessee and um i'm getting ready to turn into the church parking lot and i see a police car pull off from where he would had a speed trap set up and hit his lights and so I'm like, man, this is like right before church. I'm not pulling into the church parking lot. So uh, there's a little strip mall that's actually on the grade below where the road is. So I pulled in, pulled down into this parking area thinking, well, maybe nobody from church will see me getting sighted you know, here by the police right before the service starts or actually before prayer meeting starts. And so he pulls in behind me and, um, I, you know, get the license and registration out and hand it to him and. And he says, uh, hey, do you know why I pulled you over? And uh, I said, uh, no, sir, I guess you'll have to tell me. And uh, he said, well, um, you were speeding. And I said, okay. And I knew that was a, not just a possibility but a probability. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just was trying to be nice. And so uh, he said, how fast do you think you were going? And at that point, now a lot had happened in the time of – period of time between those two police incidences where i got off with no ticket and when i got pulled over for allegedly speeding and one of the things that i knew was that police officers will ask you how fast you're going or how fast you think you were going and get you to say that you were going over the speed limit so i had learned that Uh, and then if their radar gun wasn't working or whatever they can put on the ticket that you're going, you know, 18 miles over the speed limit because the driver told 
the driver confessed that he was going over the speed limit. So, um, believe it or not, at a traffic stop in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, I actually invoked the Fifth Amendment. I had learned that the Fifth Amendment was designed to protect people who are innocent, uh, not just uh, some a refuge for the guilty. So, I said, uh, Officer, um, you know, I appreciate what you're doing. I know you got a hard job, but um, I'm if I'm being asked to incriminate myself, then I'm going to have to plead the Fifth Amendment. And he kind of <laughs> looked at me kind of funny. And he said, no, I'm, he said, no, I'm just, you know, if you were to, if you were guessing about how fast you were going, how fast do you think you're going? I said, officer, you know, I really do appreciate that you have a job to do, but I'm just going to have to plead the Fifth Amendment on that question. And so he didn't get mad, and he didn't cuss, and, you know, he didn't act weird, and he just said, well, you were going 61 and a 45. And I said, um, uh, okay. And so he walked back to his car and did the thing, and and um, came back, and he said, so I'm not going to write you a ticket. Um, you know, I know it's a nice sunny day, and, you know, the weather's nice, and you got a nice car, and the top's down, you're having a good time. He said, but just keep your eye on the, on the speed limit and uh, stay within it. And then I went to church and got mocked by one of the elders who saw me sitting in the parking lot with the cop uh so another time no ticket uh not long after that i still had the car don't have it anymore uh, i was going on another road here around town and happened upon a speed trap and this guy was well planted i mean he could have been a sniper he was sitting right in the shadows on a, a two-lane street pulls me over uh wait waves me over he doesn't even pull me over he steps out of the shadows and points me to slow down and pull over on the side of the road he walks up and says, uh, sir, I'm going to uh, cite you with a warning. You were going however, however. And he told me the speed limit on this particular road was uh, like 30 miles an hour, and I had no idea, or maybe it was 25. And I was like, are you serious? Yep, and you were going, whatever, 40. And I said, I can honestly say I had no idea the speed limit was that low. And he said, well, most people don't, but we've been getting complaints from the residents and people driving too fast down the road, and they've been complaining. So I'm just out here writing warnings. This is not a ticket, but it is a warning. And um, and so he writes it, and I signed it, and um, it's super nice, and I was, you know, polite, and so that was that. And about a week later, I was coming from the other direction. He's sitting in the same spot, same shadows, catching people coming from the direction I had been coming from before. Uh, and so I had to top down, pull up beside him, said, hey, man, you catching anybody? And he kind of laughed, and I said, yeah, you pulled me over last week. And he said, and God is my witness, he said, I didn't give you a ticket, did I? I mean, I don't, I don't, he didn't even remember me from Adam. And I was just like, this is such a different experience than the, the African-American men, the black men that I've talked to who've had encounters with. I'm not talking about snot nosed teenagers or guys that are just, you know, uh, got criminal records as long as your arm or anything like that. I'm talking about guys who, who have guys who are just like me except they have different skin color and their encounters with the police are so drastically different. And this is a true virtually across the board with almost every uh, African-American friend that I have. And so I begin to, uh, I begin to realize that my experience was not transferable. Uh, it was, it's essentially the experience of every white man I've ever known. I, I've never known a white man to get thrown in jail because he, you know, had a difficult encounter, a traffic stop, but I've also never known any white guys get ordered out of their car uh, and manhandled in some way uh, for reasons that are literally inexplicable in situations just like I was in. Uh, 
Now, I do know white guys who've had not pleasant encounters with the cops, uh, but way different than what I'm describing right now. And so uh, I began to think about what what is this? Why is there this disparity? Um, and I don't know the answers to all that, but I do know that there are systems in place that uh, that create dynamics that are favorable to me that are disfavorable to people that are like me, except their skin color is different. Same life experiences, same, you know, marital status, same parenthood status, but skin color is different. Like a guy that I used to work with who got, who would get pulled over coming to work in the morning uh, from where he lived. And I asked him, why are you always getting pulled over? He said, because I drive a new truck. He said, nobody else in my neighborhood drives a new truck. I drive a new truck and it was a nice truck. Uh, he said, so I'm not supposed to be here. Well, that's obviously wrong. He is supposed to be there. He lives there. But he gets pulled over over some suspicion because he has a new truck. Uh, another black friend that I used to work with uh, was routinely late. And uh, his boss, who was a man about my age, uh, you know, had to ask him, you know, why are you late? And he said, well, because they've always got police roadblocks where I live. And the the ball, his boss, who was also a white guy, uh, said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, do you have roadblocks around your subdivision that you have to go through all the time? Are they always stopping people and checking for drugs and whatever where you live? And the boss said, well, no, I've never had to deal with that at all. And uh, the employee, the African-American man, said, well, I have to deal with it all the time. And so that's how they treat my subdivision. Uh, so there's there's just a lot of things that are different in that way. And so then if you look at the the justice system, you look at county courts and city courts, and uh, you look at how the law functions in the United States. You, you read a book, uh, read Ordinary Injustice by Amy Bach, or read The Innocent Man by John Grisham, or read any number of books that take a look at the entire U.S. justice system or get acquainted with the Innocence Project or watch Just Mercy or watch the Innocence Files. And this is these are not isolated. This is not like small town, rural, you know, Hick, West Virginia, where you got some, you know, extremely overweight sheriff with tobacco juice running down his face and he just runs it like it's his little kingdom. Uh, Those places may exist. Those places probably do exist. But we're talking about big city, medium city, small towns. There are systems in place that are that embed, uh, that run because of a lack of justice. Now, this is not universal, but it is a lot. So here's an example. After Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, and all the, the rioting died down after that, and you know the news had moved on and people had moved on, except for the people directly affected, of course, um, some reporters went in, and this might have been with the Washington Post, and began to look at the, the systemic issues in Ferguson and a couple of little towns nearby. And they reported out that how the courts and the city government or county government, whichever it was, and the police uh, uh, department worked together. This is all legal, but they worked together to um, – to make sure that tickets, you know, that there were tickets written, that these people are coming to court, that they have fines, 
the way that the court system ran, if you were one minute late, the doors were locked. So you could not only could you not get in to pay your fine that you probably didn't deserve to begin with, but then you had a court fee tacked onto for not showing up. So the court system was run in a way that cre- that generated more revenue for the city. So any so think about this. Whenever you have a place, a, a local government, a city government, a state government, whatever it is, you have a local government that, that runs, that plans a budget, and part of that budget is dependent upon court costs. And those court costs are generated when people are given tickets, and those tickets go to fund uh, tickets and citations and imprisonments and bails and all those things go to fund uh, local governments and people can't afford these things and so they're constantly in debt and they're constantly uh, in you know where they can't pay their car insurance which gets them another ticket which gets them another fine and so the these governments and this is not unusual this is this is everywhere <laughs> governments then begin be, begin to depend on this income in order to keep the government functioning. So the people that live in these areas then become sources of income for the government. They're not citizens that are that are protected and served. Uh, they're just another source of income for the police department. They're another source of income for the local government. And who cares whether these people are being exploited or not? This is just the life that they've chosen. It's what some people would tell you. And if they want to get out of it, they can move. Uh, but the reality is that's not that easy. So then you can look at the bail system. So you've got places, giant cities like New York City, where people get arrested for you know, stealing a bar of soap. Things that even if they were to be convicted as a misdemeanor, the fine would be 25 bucks or whatever. But they go, they can't afford bail. So they go to court. They're assigned bail for a crime that doesn't cost anybody hardly anything. It's a misdemeanor at the best. They get assigned a bail amount that they can't afford. So they go to jail. So now they're in jail. So now they're costing the city money. Well, they get fined. They get court costs. They get fines just for being arrested. So in some cities, you get fines just for being arrested. Even if you are found not guilty, even if your charges are dropped, you still get fines just for being arrested. So you can see how all of this stuff then works to provide funding or to fund mechanisms, structures that then – that that then put policies or enforce policies that are in place that the policies themselves are not just and so this is what we say when we uh, this is what we mean when we talk about systemic injustice it's not a judge or it's not a prosecutor now certainly they can be part of the problem but it's the way the things are put together it's the laws and the statutes and the principles and uh, the mechanisms that are put in place. It's not the clerk in court A and the you know the the transcriber in court B that are running some kind of con behind the scenes. It's the way things function. It's the system that's the problem. And so when the system constantly uh, creates situations where injustices occur, then we can say that it's systemic injustice. And when those injustices routinely affect people of color then we can say that is systemic racism. It's not about the judge being a racist. It's not about the prosecutor being a racist or one particular cop being a racist, although all three of those people may be racists. It's the fact that the way the system functions, whether it's by design or by default, the way the system functions is to disproportionately punish people with darker skin color and disproportionately allow or reward, as in my case, by not getting tickets, 
uh, people with lighter skin color. So uh, when we're talking about this, then we're not talking about Marx. We're not talking about Hegel. We're not talking about the Frankfurt School. We're not talking about those kinds of. Now, some people might be. I don't know who they are. Uh, That's not how I learned about justice. It's not how I learned to pick up on systemic issues. Uh, I learned it by reading the Bible. Uh, I learned it by seeing what God condemns, what God hates, and what God loves. And so um, whether you're talking about human trafficking or whether you're talking about abortion on demand or whether you're talking about um, disproportionate sentencing or disproportionate arrests or disproportionate uses of force, um, whatever you're talking about in that regard, wherever we see inequity, uh, we're looking at uh, this kind of inequity. We're looking at injustice. Uh, And so what does God expect then? Well, he expects us to pursue justice. He expects us to do uh, what's right. So if you're a police officer, God expects you uh, to enforce the law in a way that reflects his righteousness. If you are a judge, if you're a prosecutor, if you're a defense attorney, if you work in the system in some way, God has an expectation. And this is pretty clear from reading the scriptures that God has an expectation that his righteousness is going to be reflected in these things. So uh, damages cannot be overly punitive then. So if a person you know, steals a pineapple from Kroger, they can't get the death sentence. That's, that's, not, a, that's not a situation that, that would please God. So, uh, so what we need to be looking at, so as believers then, we're not trying to institute theocracy. We're not trying to put the Old Testament you know, in, in play. We're not trying to uh, reboot the law of Moses for your local town. What we do is we review the systems. We look at, now we're in a different, totally different situation than ancient Israel, which was a monarchy, a theocracy, then a monarchy. Uh, but we have the opportunity to write we have the opportunity to email. We have the opportunity to make phone calls. We have the opportunity to vote. We have the opportunity to run for office in the United States. And um, so we can become involved. When we see a law that doesn't reflect the righteousness of God, then we can become involved. We can confront a crooked prosecutor. We can agitate for people to be investigated or arrested. Or we can stand on the street corner with a sign. And by the way, there's there's no distinction between standing in front of an abortion clinic uh, with a sign that says choose life and standing at a protest in front of the state capitol with a sign that says Black Lives Matter. It's the same thing. We are agitating. I don't know why I use that word. I just guess I heard in a documentary or something. We are reminding people that there are certain things that are crucially important. And this is legal in our uh, country, and so we can do that. And we can write congressmen, and we can tell people that this particular law is causing a lot of harm. wasn't intended that way, maybe, but this is how it's playing out. So that's another thing. Sometimes we pass laws. The laws are not necessarily bad laws. But over time, they begin to be applied in a way that makes them unjust, or the application is unjust. It's inconsistent. It affects uh, men more than it affects women, or it affects blacks more than it affects whites, or it affects poor people more than it affects rich people, which is often the case. Uh, and so we can say, look, this is not right. Everybody should be treated the same. And if it's a bad law, we should get it off the books. So uh, to love justice, then, is really to love to see 
God's righteousness demonstrated. It's uh, in the scriptures, the word that's translated for justice and righteousness is the same word. And so the concepts are the same. So when we talk about the righteousness of God being revealed, we're talking about the justice of God being revealed. When we talk about God loving justice, he loves righteousness. He loves justice. He loves to see his glory displayed. And his glory is not displayed when his righteousness is tarnished uh, by inequities. And so when, uh, when, when you think about justice, and when you think about justice being applied in the world today, so we, we long for justice, but we also should be pursuing it. We should be doing what we can to see that it's carried out, uh, that the justice in the gates mentioned in the Old Testament, which would be our court system, is, is actually just, that wicked people get the punishment that they deserve, uh, that innocent people are not punished, um, that people who are looking for clearance rates don't get to use innocent people to bolster their cred or bolster their numbers, that people who are running for re-election don't get to, uh, don't get to throw innocent people in jail or have innocent people harassed and, and uh, arrested uh, simply so that they can look like they're tough on crime. Uh, we're, looking for, we're looking for ways to uh, meet people's needs, to, uh, to treat them the way that God wants them to be treated, that respects their dignity as humans created in his image, uh, and that laws are equitably and justly applied so that uh, people get to experience at some point uh, what God, God's love for them in some way that we as his messengers uh, can share. So that's kind of how I came to love justice and to hate injustice is through a thorough reading, a thorough study of Scripture. Uh, I cannot look at the Scriptures again and see any way that it does not matter for me to speak up or for me to write or for me to call uh, and talk about things that are wrong uh, and bring them to the attention. Now, I'm not talking about individual sins, so that's another place that people tend to confuse the categories. They say, well, you know, it's really about sin. Well, of course it's about sin. It's been about sin since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in the garden. There's never been a time that sin hasn't been involved in the life of anybody that you know or that I know or ever have known. Um, There's always about sin. But I can sin against you, and I don't have to go to jail for it. So if I lie about you or I slander, unless I break a law, uh, or if I come over and throw trash in your yard um, and you pick it up and you're mad but you don't call the police on me or something like that, or you know, I can have an attitude toward you or something that's not illegal, then I've sinned against you. And if a prosecutor withholds evidence, exculpatory evidence that could help a person not go to jail, but they need the clearance rate or they're just convinced in their own mind that because the guy has, you know, a a bad eye that he's guilty. Um, Yes, those kinds of things happen. So um, and the prosecutor uh, twists things and withholds evidence and the man ends up going to jail. Well, yes, the prosecutor has personally sinned against that man. Uh, I would, in the scenarios that I gave, I would have personally sinned against those people. The difference is this. The prosecutor holds a position of authority that he has the force of law behind him to change someone's future and to destroy their life, to put them in jail, to take away their freedoms. So not only has the prosecutor sinned against that person, an injustice has been committed against that person with the force of law behind it. 
And so that person then has no options, no opportunity. Well, I mean, he can appeal and all those kinds of things, obviously, but he can't just walk free. His freedoms have been removed. And so a person who has power has now utilized that power to strip a person of their rights and privileges. So person B, who's now going off to jail, is suffering at the hands of authority. Uh, you can see this in redlining. You can see this in Jim Crow. Uh, you can see, obviously, in s- slavery and segregation. Uh, but that's the thing. It's not all in the past. Uh, things still play out this way because we're we're fallen people. We have sinful hearts, and sinful systems come out of people with sinful hearts. It is as inevitable as the sky being blue or rain being wet. And to say that it's only a sin issue, uh, to say that it's a personal thing, that all these things are individual is categorically wrong. Uh, Sin is part of it. Uh, Individual behavior is part of it. But the systems and laws that reinforce these things are also part of it, and that's systemic injustice, uh, and it can be systemic racism as well. So those are my thoughts. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review. Uh, Thanks for listening, and until the next time, grace and peace.